Peasant, yes. Um, and I'm thankful that you're still here. Uh, some people might get uh, bored and go on to other things, but you all have been troopers and, and you love the Word of God, and I thank God for you and your love for His Word. Uh, Isaiah chapter 49, and let's, uh, let's pray and let's get into our study because we're no, more long, we're no longer talking about Babylon, we're no longer talking about Cyrus, we're going to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, that is my favorite subject to talk about. Lord, we come before you this evening thanking you for your grace and your mercy. You have been so good to us. We do not deserve any of your grace, any of your mercy, but yet you have constantly and repeatedly bestowed them upon us. Lord, as we pause for the next few moments and we look into your word, may this not be too academic that we just learn it for head knowledge, but may it, these truths impact us. May we love you to a greater degree. May we be so inspired to worship you, to adore you, and most importantly, to obey you and to share you with others. Lord, I pray right now that you would just rest our hearts, allow us to just rest in you, and we pray for the Wana children across the street, the workers. We ask that you would bless them and help them. And Lord, if any of, anyone is in any of our services that has never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for his or her eternal salvation, may tonight be the night they hear the gospel and believe. Again, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, I ask you for your help. I cannot even begin to teach without you. So Lord, fill me up. For your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And amen. Amen. Thank you. You know, God used Cyrus in his calling to restore Israel to the land of Judah. But Messiah's calling from his birth was to restore Israel and Gentiles to fellowship with God. We now move from the near prophecies of our book. When I say near prophecies, when Isaiah prophesied them, Many of those pertaining to Babylon 150 years later came true. Now we're moving to the further prophecies to more of the end times, latter days type prophecies. And most specifically tonight to Jesus the Messiah and his great work. Dr. Thomas Constable said, Isaiah begins this pericope by clarifying the calling and the ministry of the servant. He referred to his servant earlier in chapter 42 verses 1 through 9. But now he reiterated and reinforced what he had revealed in preparation for further revelation about this key figure. This servant that we're going to talk about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse number 1 of chapter 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. In the first seven verses of this chapter, we have the calling of the servant. Who is this servant? Who is speaking in these verses? He says in verse 1, Listen, O coastlands, 
to me. He summons the whole world essentially <clears throat> to listen to him. Who is him? Who is me in this passage? And he says, and take heed you peoples from afar, the Lord has called me. Now some people thought, you know, because Isaiah is the author of this book, that Isaiah is speaking here, and Isaiah is writing this portion, and this portion pertains to Isaiah. It does not. Why do I say that? Because the further we go into this study, you will understand that the description given of him later cannot apply to Isaiah. So by the process of elimination, we know it's not Isaiah. In one portion or one reference in just a few moments, he's going to refer to himself as Israel. And you say, well, maybe he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about Israel. Why? Because again, this, by the process of elimination, Israel cannot be the one by which all of the Gentiles and all of the nation of Israel saved. They can't, no one can do it in and of himself. There's only one person that can do this, and that is Jesus Christ. So by the process of elimination, we understand that the servant is the Messiah. He is the me in this passage. And it's very important that we understand that. Now notice what he says here, verse, verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. Emphasizing, you know, that Jesus became a man. The Word was, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became a man and came to this earth. And he did so through Mary, uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, Mary, and he was a, has a divine calling on his life. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And so what we see here is he is using the same terminology with which the Lord had appealed to Israel to listen to him in chapter 41, in chapter 46, in chapter 48... He is the one, the Messiah is the one that's calling the world's population to pay attention to what he has to say. He claimed a divine calling from his birth that God had commissioned him to announce what he would reveal. And in these following verses, the description is that of the Messiah. It has to be abundantly clear once we start going through these. You will see that it's not Israel, it's not even the faithful remnant, it's not Isaiah, it's not the church. It's the Messiah. The, script, the, the description given here in just a few moments throughout this chapter, it can only be Messiah. No one else fits. So that's why we see a transition now from Cyrus and bringing the people out of ca uh, Babylonian captivity to the actual land, the physical movement of the land. Now we see the calling on the Lord's life on the Lord Jesus Christ, the, His calling to move both Israel and Gentiles back to fellowship with God. Now, we know that this will only happen in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, parts of it's unfolding right now. Those of us who come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be there. We are saved. We'll, we'll be a part of that. But the ultimate fulfillment and fruition of this occurs in the millennial, or at the millennial kingdom, I should say. Look at verse 2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, he, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. Now, Jesus the Messiah was divinely called from the womb, 
And verse 2 shows us that he was called to announce God's words that pierce like a two-edged sword. Now, this is very important because I don't want you to get lost in this because you need to hear this because we're crossing over with the Hebrews and some other things when we're talking about <clears throat> this and the Word and the Lord Jesus. His, his ministry proceeds from His mouth. For instance, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it will be on the screen here. Now, out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. If you want an Old Testament illustration, how about this? When God said, let there be light, he spoke it, there was light. Where was Jesus? He was active in the creation. He was part of that speaking. It was part of his mouth. By him, Colossians says, all things were created and all things consist. His word is power. He comes onto the scene and he has identified as the word. In the beginning was the what, class? The word. And the word was, uh, the word, the word was God, the Bible says. This is a powerful revealing pointing to the Messiah. Jesus would be available for his master's use, the Father. Remember, he told the disciples, I must be about my what? Father's business. There was a submission to the will of the Father, the commissioning of God for him to have this ministry. He didn't have to, he was God, but he did. He came to this earth. He would not be prominent at all times. There are times when Jesus was obscured. The, the, the Bible tells us that, you know, we watch all these movies and see all these pictures, and, you know, he's quite a handsome figure. But the Bible says that he was quite a com comely man. He was not uh, ex extravagant. He was common. Did you ever think about this? you ever notice this? That when they came to the garden to arrest Jesus, Judas had to betray him with a kiss to signify who Jesus was. It wasn't like he had this big aura around him and he was floating, oh, you know, and everybody was thinking he was wonderful. They didn't distinguish him from any of the fishermen. Judas had to kiss him. So there are times when he was uh, not prominent. I would say this, let me say this. He's always been prominent, but the world didn't see him as prominent. That's better, better language there. But he would be protected and hidden until summoned to use. Remember when Jesus, uh, they, they wanted Jesus to take the kingdom, and he said, listen, this is not my hour. This is not my hour. Jesus, think about this. In all of Jesus' earthly life, he never left his region. He stayed right there in that region in, in, in around Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Capernaum, Magdala, those places right there. He never, Nazareth, he never left that. You know, when he was a baby, went to Egypt, I understand that. But I'm talking about his ministry, of his ministry. He didn't go all over the world. The imagery here we see coming out of the sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Revelation, sharp sword coming out of his mouth. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He made me a polished shaft, a bow. In his quiver, what is a quiver for? Arrows. 
He has hidden me. The imagery here is of the bow and the sword are both offensive weapons. Now, the sword is for close fighting, right? The bow is for long range. Likewise, the servant's words would be instruments to defeat the enemies. Did you ever notice that Jesus spoke many times to a a large crowd? And they would go away and they wouldn't understand what he would say. And Jesus would come along to his disciples and say, Do you understand what I mean? And they didn't understand. And he would uh, explain it to them so they understood. There's this overarching, but yet there's this piercing short term with the disciples or short uh, range with the disciples. Jesus was the embodiment of the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, 14 and 15. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is the ministry that he had been called to. What was this ministry that he was called to? If you look at with me in verse 3, the servant refers to God calling him Israel. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now you have to think about this. When God called the nation of Israel, they were to be a light unto the Gentiles. They were to represent God to the world. But Israel has more problems and had more problems than any of us ever had. Even though we love them, even though they're God's chosen people, they turned their back on Him. Yet he still called them. He still loved them. So his glory was never going to be revealed in the nation of Israel because their constant rejection, they're constantly falling into the cyclical behavior of, uh, of sin and judgment and then repentance, and then they start all over again. Throughout this book, we have seen Israel was not able to carry her function as being a light unto the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, if you come to the New Testament, you will find that the Jews view the Gentiles as dogs. They did not like them. But Jesus Christ would fulfill this role through the work God called him to do. So in this instant, when you see him saying, My servant, O Israel... It is not, he is not calling him Israel for identity. He is calling him Israel for the function of doing what Israel was supposed to do, but Israel would not do, and that is be a light to the Gentiles. In spite of the perceived unsuccessfulness of his work, even though the servant was called, even though he was the Lord Jesus Christ, it would appear that his work at times was unsuccessful. We look at the world around us and we think, you know, how could the cross of Christ 
be successful if the world is in the shape it's in today. But notice this, John 1, 10 and 11, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. His own people rejected Him. You know why they rejected Him? Because they didn't like the way He came. They wanted someone, a king, to deliver them from Roman oppression and make them the kingdom they thought they should be. And there are Messianic Jews. There are a lot of Messianic Jews. But there are a lot of Jews who are Jews nationally who are not at all in the belief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I rode, when I was on my way to Israel, I rode from Columbus to New York on a plane and sat beside a guy who lived in Tel Aviv who had a bunch of different coffee shops. I didn't find that out until we were leaving because it's hard to get coffee in Israel. I mean, good coffee, it is. Uh, they have it, but you got to go and you got to pay for it. Um, and I sat with him and I discussed, and we had a great discussion. He was, uh, his, he was over here visiting his sons. He had two sons that attend Ohio State University in Columbus. That's why he was in Columbus. He was originally born in the United States. He was born to a Jewish family. And he would go to like what we call church camp. He would go to Israel with Jewish ministries. And he would go there. And while he was there, he met his girlfriend, which would become his wife. When he graduated from college, he moved over there. He had dual citizenship, became a citizen of Israel. And in our discussions, he was a practicing Jew who practiced the law, the Torah, and all the, 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 that, the ceremonial things but he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was not offensive. We had a great conversation, but it doesn't matter. The point of the conversation was he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. In spite of the perceived unsuccessfulness, his work would please God. This is something we need to see in Christ and apply to our church today. Because growing up, <clears throat> I grew up in a, a church that was a good church. I don't uh, apologize for that. And I remember the days when, you know, people would come to the altar, and if they didn't come to the altar, you know, we weren't successful. But here's the thing. God is pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not tied to the outcome or the number of people who believe. It's tied to faithfulness to the calling. And any church needs to understand that we must be faithful to the calling and do what God's called this church to do. Individuals need to do what God's called us to do. Witness, share our faith, and leave the results to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't save anyone. Now, I want to tell people, I want to tell them how to be saved. I want to show them how to be saved. I want to show them what the Scripture says about them being saved. But ultimately, they have to believe. And we can't say that we're, um, uh, we're successful or unsuccessful based on who responds because God's going to sort all that out in the end. 
But we can say that we're successful when we obey the calling God has given us. And in this perceived uh, unsuccessfulness, Jesus' work on the cross pleased God. Dr. Constable says, Thomas Constable, he was a great uh, taught many years at Dallas Theological Seminary. Incidentally, I got to meet him when Dad and I went to a conference at Dallas Seminary. I went into one of those breakout sessions, and he was there, and he taught. And, uh, but he has a great work on light, online. It's called Sonic Light, Thomas Constable's Notes. He's got all these wonderful, uh, just about every book of the Bible, he has it completely broken down verse by verse, and it's wonderful. He says this. He says, Man's justice gave Messiah the cross, but God's justice gave him the crown. Jesus would commit his work to God and trust him for the outcome. How hard must it have been of the humanity part of Jesus, fully God, fully man, knowing that he's washing the feet of his betrayer. Thinking humanly, that wouldn't that just really, really hurt you as a human being? But Jesus was the servant Messiah here, and he is committed to the calling that he surrendered to of the Father. Listen, look at verse 5 with me. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Verse 5 in the calling of the servant Messiah is to bring back Israel to God. This is the first part. You'll see the second part in verse 6. The first part is to bring Israel back to God. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind thinks this. <coughs> God is calling him, Jesus, he's sending him into the world to bring back Israel. He does this, and Israel rejects him. Israel rejects him. But you know, not everyone in Israel rejected him. You and I, we don't know the full number of people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, you read through the back, book of Acts, you'll see 5,000 saved, 3,000 saved. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing the Lord is doing. <laughs> the servant is honored by God. And know the Lord says, who formed me from the womb, verse 5, to be a servant, to bring Jacob, Israel, back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. Now we know that's not Isaiah. It's Jesus. And think about this. He is honored by God. He has been given a name above every name. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has strengthened him for his work. Guys, listen. Do you think about this? When Jesus was on the earth and he was going to do something miraculous... If you read your Bible, you will find before these great works he did, he was often alone, off alone, with the Heavenly Father. The Father strengthened him for this work. When he was in the garden, and he 
he was praying, let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. He was praying. He was being strengthened by the Father, the humanity side of him. It would do well of us to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever we're going to do anything for the cause of Christ, may it be bathed in prayer for strength from the Father. In verse 6, it revealed the second part that Jesus would do far more than restore the people of Israel. Look at verse 6. Indeed, he says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. That's not big enough. We need more. And to restore the preserved one of Israel's. Of Israel. All right? There's something more. What's more? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 5. Remember verse 5 starts off, says, And now the Lord says, God speaking to Jesus, saying, You said, but Jesus is God. Father speaking to Jesus says, Not only are you going to bring Israel back to me, but you are also going to be a light to the Gentiles for the purpose that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. There is... No other name whereby we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. He is going to do far more. So what was the calling? The calling was that he would come and restore Israel and he would restore Gentiles back to fellowship with the Father. Listen to me. Please hear this out. The land is not the issue. The Arabs... They can all argue over the land, Russia, all of them. That's not the issue because the land has already been given. It's God's. They think they're going to get it, but they're not. The issue is the restoration of Israel and the restoration of Gentiles who believe back to fellowship with God. That is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work. I hate to say it, but Jesus is not here to improve our life on this earth. Everyone in this room will one day breathe our last breath. Everyone in this room one day will die. It's appointed unto men once to die, but next, the judgment. Jesus' calling of the Father was never to improve our life on this earth. It's to prepare us for eternity. It's to prepare us for eternity. Verse 7 reveals that the very ones he came to save would despise him and reject him, but eventually they will bow to him. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to whom the nation abhors. You think about this. In the United States of America, you can walk just about any kind of governmental meeting and you can claim any kind of religion, but they will tell you, whatever you do, do not speak in the name of Jesus. They have been able to, in certain places, offer up Muslim prayers. They have been able to, they've even had weird places where they have Satanists in there. But they will not, they will not, they will forbid you to say Jesus. Every once in a while, I'll read, I'll read of a pastor who is 
called of God and has a backbone and he'll be invited to pray at the Capitol or somewhere and he'll pray in the lovely name of Jesus after he's been told he's not to and he does it anyways. Hallelujah. Praise God. There's no other name whereby we must be saved. And I'll tell you what. Guys, listen, we need to be a little more specific. While I'm on this subject, I'm going to ride a little hobby horse for a second. We need to be a little more specific. We use the term the Lord generally. We need to be specific nowadays and identify Him as the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about that name, right? We sing that song. There's something about the name of Jesus. And that's the name. That is the name. That every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. God told uh, Joseph, you will call him Jesus. God gave him Jesus. His name. The Father gave him his name. And in that is the name that is exalted. That is the name that is above every name. That is the name that everyone will bow to in heaven, in earth, and those under the earth. His name. His name. In verses 8 through 13, notice the ministry of the servant. Thus says the Lord. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Even though they would reject his ministry, and it would seem for a while that it was unsuccessful, God assured the servant of four things. The Father assured Jesus four things. Number one, at just the right time, he would hear him. In the acceptable time, I've heard you. Secondly, he says that he would help him. Thirdly, he says he would preserve him. And lastly, he would give him, he would give him to as a covenant to the people. When Jesus was alive, he walked through the crowds and they wanted to grab a hold of him and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. But he just walked away from him and they couldn't do anything about it. Why? Because the Father had told him he would protect him, he would preserve him, he would give him as a covenant to the people, and until the time was right, they would not be able to lay one finger on a hair of his head. Until the time was right. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul picked up on this. He quotes these verses in, uh, he quotes verse 8 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. In Paul's mind, the day of salvation had begun, meaning the death on the cross. Paul, being trained in Judaism, he understood, he knew, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, was taught. He was a great student. He was a Jew's Jew. And he was able to put this prophecy together with the cross of Jesus Christ. And saying it's already begun. However, its ultimate fulfillment will occur in the millennial kingdom. 
Why? Because primarily the nation of Israel who has been set aside and we as Gentiles have been grafted in, they've been set aside until the full number, until they're jealous, provoked to jealousy, and they come back to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ultimate fulfillment of the restoration of Israel and the entrance of the Gentiles coming together will not completely be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. In verses 9 through 13, these describe the events of the millennial kingdom. Look at verse 9. Or let me read the last sentence of verse 8, or the last two sentences. To restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. That you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed all along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all the desolate heights. They shall neither hunger (coughs) nor thirst. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on his afflicted. The ministry of the servant bringing Israel and Gentiles back into the fellowship of God will not be complete until the millennial kingdom. The great work that does this, hear me out, the great work that does this is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the key Figure. This is everything hinges upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Even though we look around and we don't think, man, it's not coming together as it should. Look at this place. We're becoming a more godless generation, not a more godly generation. Remember, Jesus, when he died on the cross and he arose from the grave, God the Father was appeased. His wrath was appeased. And just because it doesn't look like the work is sufficient doesn't mean that it's not. It is. It is sufficient. And as a matter of fact, verses 14 through 26 is nothing more than a reassurance to Zion that the work of Christ will be sufficient to restore Israel and to Restore the Gentiles back to fellowship with God. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, we look at Israel and we think, How could you say that, Israel? The Bible says you are His uh, chosen seed. I mean, apple of His eye. You are the one, Israel. He chose you as a nation over all nations. How could you say that? And some people would say, well, you know, God is not really keeping his covenant because look at the nation of Israel. God is just in what he's doing to Israel right now because Israel has rejected him. 
And God is just, and He is righteous, and He is holy. And He is not at all broken any of His promises. But look at the tenderness and the mercy with which He answers this question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That's an obvious question. It has an obvious answer. Just as a nursing mother cannot forget her child, neither can God forget His chosen nation. He tells them they are inscribed on the palm of His hands, and your walls are continually before Him. Verse 16, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Verse 17, Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you to waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see. All these gather together and come to you as I live, says the Lord. You shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride. God assures them in verses 17 and 18, He assures them that He is going to take care of them. In verse 19 and uh, through 21, He assures them that He will provide for them. Look at verse 19. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. Your enemies will be gone. The children you have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, The, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and I am desolate, a captive wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was left alone, but these, where were they? In verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations. God says, I'm going to raise my right hand, and I'm going to make an oath, an oath to the nations. And set my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms. And your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. Can you see this? How would you feel living in this day when Isaiah is talking about to people who lost their children, perhaps during Babylonian captivity. And they're saying, Lord, have you forgotten us? Have you forsaken us? And he says, no, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. There's coming a time when those who you lost, they'll bring them in their arms to you. They'll bring them. Guys, listen, this is not all. This earth is not all. We think humanly, everything humanly, everything humanly. We don't think about eternal things anymore. His reassurance to them is, listen, it may not look like it now, but there's something far greater coming. There's coming a time when you will not believe it. The kings, these people that think they're important, they'll be nothing but foster parents. They'll bow down to you with their faces on the earth. I have a book in my library. It's one of my favorite books. I rarely loan it out. It's falling apart. It's called The Reign of the Servant Kings by Jody Dillo. He's also a 
a graduate and a professor at, at um, Dow Seminary, The Reign of the Servant Kings, it talks about eternity and our roles in eternity and it talks about everlasting life and it it goes beyond what we can see and think humanly to what's actually going to happen and do you know that those of us that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity we will reign with him which means we will have places of responsibility which means we will have uh, positions of responsibility And we will lead in the kingdom with the Lord. And there will be those who bow down and they'll lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. This is not the first time in the scriptures where he tells us that those who wait on him will not be ashamed. We read it in Isaiah earlier. It's actually in the Psalms as well. What God wants us to know, he wants, what He wants Zion to know is He has a plan. And His plan includes the Lord Jesus Christ. That is His plan. There is no plan B. He doesn't need plan B. He assures them of protection and provision and prominence and power. And all of this culminates with the absolute knowledge of knowing, truly knowing, listen to me, truly knowing that He is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We believe it and we say we know it, but we in the kingdom will absolutely with a perfect knowledge, know Him as Lord. Isaiah records this wonderful prophecy of the great servant, the Messiah, who is the one who will bring Israel and Gentiles back to fellowship with God through His great work of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Apostle Paul picked up on this when he wrote in Romans, and he said this, and, and he wrote in the other epistles about this mystery of the Jew and the Gentile being one in the church, being united together as one. He picked up on this. That's why he went back to Isaiah and quoted that in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6 2. Perhaps at this time we look around and it does not seem that the work of Jesus has accomplished all of this. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not so. I will tell you this. Trust Him. It will accomplish all the Father intends it to accomplish. All we have to do is believe Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. This is what I love when I read this and I read through Isaiah and I study this and I read some of the things great scholars have written. All of this points to the servant Messiah, the one whom this text here is all about. 
If you allow me to opine just for a moment, we need a real revival in our hearts, church, in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a revival in our love. Listen, we, we come to church on Sunday morning and we worship. Maybe we like the song, maybe we don't. Maybe we like to sing, we don't. But if we really, if we really, if we really made this about Jesus Christ, we will worship. Whatever style it is, if He is our focus, not the musician, not what's going on up here, not what someone's doing, focus on Jesus. This is this climax that's been coming through Isaiah about now we're shifting from Israel's not the issue anymore. Christ is the issue now. From here on out, Christ is the issue. And then we get into 53 and we talk about his death and so on and so forth. And this book is all about Jesus Christ. Every page. That's why we must be adamant about it. Someone says, I don't want to go down to that church. All they talk about is Jesus Christ. That, that's a compliment. That is a compliment. We've got enough talking about ourselves, right? You watch the news and all this stuff, it's all whacked out. But you can find no fault in Jesus Christ. I love it. I, <laughs> the book of Acts it cracks me up. They look at Peter and, they, and, and some other the disciples and they think, Man, these guys are, King James, ignorant and unlearned men. But they took note that they had been with Jesus. Now, I would love for the world to think I'm ignorant and unlearned if they took note that I had been with Jesus. John said, I must what? Decrease, he must increase and we need that in our land desperately we need a revival of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ I think Matt my um, stepbrother is a pastor in Ashland he had a post and I think I hope I'm saying this correctly today I think he had a post on Facebook that said revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again man that is wonderful that is wonderful and would to God, we fall all over, fall in love all over with Jesus. Every day when we get up, talk to him. Every day when you go to bed, talk to him. Talk to him throughout the day. Um, my pastor, I grew up under, in his pulpit, he had a portion of scripture. And you, he could see it, but, and whoever preached could see it, but no one else could see it. And it simply said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Sunday we left here uh, having our um, communion. And when we left, the last thing we left with was communion. I didn't want to give, I was, there were some announcements, I didn't want to give them. Because I wanted us leaving thinking about Jesus and the price he paid on the cross 
for you and for me. Church, fall in love with Jesus all over again. Father, we love you. We thank you for your great, great salvation, your great work.